Alrighty. Well, we're just starting the book of Exodus, and for those of you who weren't with us last time, and even for those of you who were, just to remind you, we... I, I for, for me, looking at the details of types and shadows in, in any given book or any given place can be really daunting and and uh, somewhat uh, confusing if you don't have a uh, something of a big picture view that you're working within. In other words, I, I find it helpful to have uh, kind of like the the bird's eye view of of what. What are the main things going on in this book? What, what's the way that God is communicating about Christ and his eternal purpose in Christ? You know, in Hebrews chapter uh, 1, it says, In many times and in many forms, or some translations say modes of old, God spoke through the fathers and the prophets, and in these days he has spoken in son. It's how that verse literally, literally reads there. Some translations there say he has spoken by his son, but it's really in son. And, and the contrast there is, is really, really important. For a lot of years, for centuries, God spoke in, in diverse manners about Christ. And now He is revealing the Christ He ha- in you whom He has spoken about in those diverse manners and ways. Well, one of those ways that God spoke about Christ is in uh, these living histories, uh, things that actually happened, but that speak beyond themselves, speak of a greater uh, spiritual reality to come. The Exodus, there's no greater uh, example of that than, than what we find in the Exodus. Um, however, th- that's not the only way God spoke. There's also uh, Psalms, for instance. There's also... You know, and what are the Psalms? The Psalms are, in my opinion, in my view at least, um, they are Christ's uh, journey of walking as a man rejected by the world, uh, cast into death, and experiencing the expectation of life and resurrection and returning to the land of the living, uh, then the joys of, of being restored and, and raised uh, to the right hand of the Father. And all kinds of... It, it's that's, The Psalms tell that story through David's own, primarily David, others as well, but primarily David's own experience as... Um, uh, speaking by the Holy Spirit, using some of the context of his own life. So the, the Psalms are another view of Christ, a way, uh, one of the divers modes or methods that God spoke of life in Christ. Jesus himself quoting the Psalms constantly uh, with reference to himself, even on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Um what are the prophets? The prophets are different. They they're still speaking of Christ. Um, they're they're it's like the word of the Lord coming to men, speaking these different views of of life. Well, of of judgment in Christ, of restoration, resurrection, redemption in Christ, all through the the big lens of the the judgment that came upon Israel through the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, but. My, my, the point is that what I'm trying to say is that there's a whole bunch of ways that God testified of His Son, and and within each of those ways, there's a whole bunch of details. and And if we don't, uh, if, if we don't, at least in my heart, I, I just what 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 when I started to see the Lord a little bit, I just kept started, I just kept reading through the Old Testament, and what. And I started, certain things started standing out at me, but what really started to help, when things really started to fall in line was when I began to, to understand, um, kind of like the, 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 again, like the big picture views. What, what is God saying? What is God showing us here? And then, and then finding out that all the details, um, they kind of fill up that big picture view with a, with a particular understanding of God's, God's eternal purpose in His Son. And and again, just just for reminders for new people, I, I don't always know where everybody's at. 
When I say that the whole Old Testament speaks of Christ, I'm not saying that the whole Old Testament speaks of Christ, the Nazarene. In other words, Christ for the 33 years he walked as a man. Christ is much bigger. Um, that's like, that's like saying, that's like saying, um, I'm going to give you a seminar on, on, on butterflies and the whole seminar is, ends up being about caterpillars. You know, Jesus appeared, uh, on the scene for 33 years as a man, but the greatness of what we experience of Christ isn't just the historical record of what he said and did. It's the reality of participating in his resurrected life and in his light and his mind and purpose and city and all the things that he is in the resurrection. And so the entire Bible speaks of that. There's a few scriptures here and there that speak of specifics about him uh, as a man in, in the um in the form of the the caterpillar so to speak if you you can hear what i mean by that but most of it speaks of christ the butterfly and that's the way that the human soul is meant to experience him to know him not copy him in the flesh as christ the caterpillar but live in him by him and know him as the life of the soul as Christ the butterfly I hope, hope that didn't make anyone confused but unfortunately most I think most of Christianity focuses on trying to learn about him as a man learn his lessons that he spoke as a man and try to copy his behavior as a man and that's not how you know Jesus Christ in fact, nobody, just to, just to point out how silly that is, nobody understood him as a, when he spoke that way and lived that way and, and did those things. No one understood Christ until Christ was living in them. Only looking back upon his teachings uh, after the resurrection did they understand anything that he was talking about. And yet here we go, 2,000 years later, trying to understand his teachings and his ways and his miracles apart from the revealing that comes by his indwelling life. And that's just absolute, uh, absolutely silly. Um, so, and I don't mean to downplay in any way the teachings and the works and the miracles of Christ, but they were all speaking of a spiritual reality that should be something we're experiencing in our soul now in the new covenant. It, it really, it really should be that way. So, why am I talking about that? I'm talking about that because Exodus paints a picture. It paints a picture of, of, of salvation, of salvation in Christ. It, it paints a picture of, of judgment in Christ. In other words, the judgment that we face by being baptized into His death. It paints that picture amazingly. It paints a picture. Well, I'm going to list a bunch of things that it paints the pictures of today, and that's kind of what I want to do. But Exodus is a story of our salvation in God's own words, in God's own living words, pictures, types, shadows, stories. Um, and And we need to understand that that's exactly what's going on here. If you don't think that that's what the Exodus is about, you just need to turn to the New Testament and see how the authors of the New Testament spoke about the Exodus, and all of your doubt will be removed, uh, because it's not a, it's not a, it's not a mysterious, strange interpretation. It's, it's just very simply, um, what the Apostle said, for instance. Let me pull up one verse here. Uh, so, Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, talks about this. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses and into the cloud and into the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, obviously referencing the man of the water out of the rock here. They all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And then it goes on to talk about a bunch of their harlotry and their rebellion and stuff. And then it wraps that section up by saying in verse 11, Now all these things happen to them as examples. And that word examples right there is, um, it's the same word that appears other places as type or symbol. 
Um, but anyway, I, my my program's going slow here. But all those things happen to them as examples. Oh, here we go. Maybe not. Thought it was going to come alive. Um, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So that's what the Exodus is. It's a it's a way that God described a people entering into death, a very specific prepared death and judgment, coming out of that judgment in and as Israel my son, even my firstborn. And it's one of the many ways that God testified of this incredible salvation that we have. A salvation that isn't a thing, but rather a person. A salvation that isn't some, some status or some, our salvation isn't the, isn't defined or known as, as a status that we have before God or the absence of something, the absence of sin, for instance. No, you can't define our salvation as anything less than a person. And to the measure that you know that person, to that measure you know our salvation. To the measure you know what it means to be bound to, joined to, united to that person, then you also know something of his kingdom. And you also know what it means to be free from the other kingdom that formerly reigned and ruled in your soul. That's how you know freedom from Pharaoh. That's how you know liberty from Egypt. And, and, um, well, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but that's what the Exodus is about. It is, you know, it's like if a person, I say this all the time, I'll say it again. It's like if a person said, God, could you please just write out, because I want to understand what it means to be in Christ. I want to understand what it means to come out of Adam and be in Christ. Could you please just write out for me in a piece of paper what what how you would describe that you know in your own words god would say to you i already did that read exodus and he could also say or read a bunch of other places too but exodus is definitely one of the big ones okay so the last time we are we we, we were looking at so so uh, and this is going to be my second and hopefully last if i can finally start with my notes here um there's a there's this big overview picture of um, salvation in in the book of Exodus and 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 we're I'm trying to kind of paint with really broad strokes here and give a little bit of an overview of this book and then we're going to go back to the beginning and and look at some of the details. The last time I, I wanted I spent pretty much the whole time talking about the nature of our slavery because we don't understand it. Um, Exodus starts off in slavery because you start off in slavery. Exodus, the, the journey of God's salvation, the paint, the pictures that he paints in this book start off with the people that were born into a, a slavery to a, a hopelessness, a slavery to sin and death, a slavery to a taskmaster that, that requires what they could not produce, a slavery that, um, it's in so many ways an awesome picture, a clear picture of slavery, what Jesus called, and Paul called slavery to sin. Uh, or slavery to Satan. Same thing, really. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and so Exodus starts out with a slavery. A people born in a hopeless condition and a condition we don't understand. And so we, a condition that nobody naturally understands, but uh, a condition that we need to come to understand. And so we, we focused on that last week. And this week I want to look at two two more big categories, and 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 that's um, that's that'll hopefully wrap up our uh, overview if I can get through these today. One of those is the nature of our deliverance. Okay, we and this this is all in the book of Exodus. I mean, it it goes beyond Exodus, but it's all right there in Exodus. God shows us what He sees and understands about being delivered. And 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 one of the biggest things that we need to realize right away is that the, our delivery is through 
death. It's, it's through that our salvation has to do with being included, put into a death. Now you'll notice if you, if you, if you stop and look at this, what a, what a Christian say coming to Christ is all about? Well, they usually say it's about getting your sins forgiven, you know? And yet here is, and, 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 uh, and yet almost every Christian will undoubtedly, um, well, will undoubtedly admit that Exodus is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of what Christ, you know, the, the death of the Lamb, you know, I mean, all the, the pictures of coming out of Egypt. I mean, almost everyone, I think, there, there might be a few people out there that would not agree with it. I don't know of any, but that say that this, this book is a, it's a picture of, um, salvation in Christ. And yet, God, when he comes to Egypt to offer Israel their salvation, says nothing about the forgiveness of sins. He didn't offer them forgiveness of sins. He offered them death. He offered them a lamb. That's what he offered. He offered them a bloody door that brought them into a very specific death. And that's something we need to think about. God, you know, when we're looking at the story, you always have to remember this. Remember, he could have set this up in a, a, thousand, a million different ways. I mean, he could have, he could have, if he was trying to show you about, um, I mean, there's so many details involved in the book of Exodus, some of which we find extremely boring because we don't understand them, some of which we find repetitive because we don't understand them, and some of them, uh, we just, Gloss right over because we don't understand them, but but they all become extremely important when you when you begin to realize that God could have done this in any way. He could have just, um, I mean, what what could he have done? He could have just had you know the Nile turn to blood and then Pharaoh went swimming and drowned, and that was it. They all went out, or he could have shot a lightning bolt into the middle of Pharaoh's castle, and and or he could have just. I, he could have done anything. He could have, you know, he could have had the hail just, or, or forget the hail. He could have just killed them all with frogs, you know, too many frogs. I don't know. He could have done anything. Is my point. He did. He did it in a very specific way. He didn't have to bring them out after putting them into a blood-covered door and eating a dead lamb. He did not have to. That's not. That wasn't necessary for any natural reason that anybody could imagine. In fact, there was nothing that he did that was necessary for a natural reason. It's not like he couldn't have just opened up the Red Sea. He could have taken him around the Red Sea. He could have flown him over the Red Sea. What's up with the parting of the Red Sea? Why did he have to do that? What I'm trying to tell you is that all of it is important for one simple reason. It happened a certain way and it's important because of what it points to, of what it testifies of. That's why. That's the only reason. So he did it in a specific way that reflected what he would later do in his own son. That's why there was seven days of unleavened bread immediately after the Passover. That's why they had to eat the Passover lamb with their sandals on and their their waist girt. That's why there was light nowhere in Egypt but only in the dwellings of Israel. I mean that the whole thing the Every detail of it is, it, none of it is happenstance. None of it's just a good story. It's not meant to creep you out or, it's there, all of it as a testimony. There's a reason. There is an absolutely significant reason why God said to Moses, for instance, in Exodus 14, the Egyptians that you see today, you'll never see them again. Not, not from this day forward on. For forever, you know, you you'll never see him again. There's a reason he said that. There's a reason he said ask. There's there's a reason he said ask your neighbors for um, gold, silver, and fine linens on your way out the door. There's a reason he told them. That. There's a reason that Pharaoh was so hardened to such a point where the night that he struck the firstborn, he he commanded them out of the land. He said, "Get out of my land, all of you. Rise up." Rise up from among the dead. We are all as dead. Rise up from among the dead and get out of here. You have no, you no longer can stay here. There's a reason it happened that way. And 
and uh, and I'm not going to try to explain all all those. De- I don't know all those details, but I uh, what, what I do understand of of some of those things, which is little, I will try to explain in the following weeks. But the big picture stuff tonight. Here's number one thing I wanted to say really clearly. God did this in a specific way because there's no other reason why he did it the way he did. There's not a single detail that was included that wasn't part of a picture, a reflection, a testimony, a foreshadow, a preview of coming attractions that he would accomplish in his son. And and what did he do? Well, what he did had to do with a people that were born in slavery, a slavery, a hopelessness and a slavery they didn't even understand. I mean, they, they didn't understand it even when they came out of it. They, they looked back and they thought they actually longed to go back and they, there were parts of it they hated and parts of it they loved just like us coming out of sin and death. But the, it, what did he do? He he brought this people out of a uh, a condition that they didn't understand that was death to them that was hopeless to them and he did it through an incredible judgment and and the and the judgment came upon the whole land including his people it, did, it didn't miss israel israel had a chance to um Israel kind of painted the picture of them receiving that judgment as their own, but but the whole land was judged, including the people of of Israel judged in the Lamb, and 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 he he caused this all to be demonstrated in a whole bunch of specific, uh, clear pictures um, that that had to do with one group of people obstinately refusing to come into an agreement with that death and judgment. Uh, uh, people who are stand, you know, there's two kinds of people. There's the people that fall on the rock and, and are broken. That's what's going on in this story. You have some people that fall on the rock, that eat the lamb, that paint the blood and enter in and come into agreement with that judgment. There's some people that fall on the rock and are broken and there's other people that the rock falls on and are and, and are and are crushed to powder. Those are the two sides. But either way, you're going down. Either way, the the lamb is your death. Whether you stand in your own merits and you say I have a right to live, and the lamb becomes it becomes the wrath of the lamb, or whether you whether you say in your heart I deserve that death, and I'm going to part. That's my death. I deserve to die. I am crucified with Christ. I am baptized into His death, buried with Him in baptism. His death is my death. My death. My my life is no more. It is not no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Whatever. Either way, Adam is being killed that night. Whether you stay and stand in Adam, or whether you find life in the morning when you walk out of that door. And that's what's going on. So so in a lot of clear ways, um, he he testifies to to Israel entering into that death. He didn't tell them to kill a lamb and throw it in the midst of the Egyptians' territory and stand back and let God, uh, you know, explode that land. No, he told them to kill a lamb and, and then take the blood and put it on their doorpost and walk right into it and then eat eat the dead lamb, hooves and intestines and everything with bitter herbs so that they were participating in that death and the ones that then eat it eat it ate the lamb were eating the lamb eating that death was in the morning an immediate expulsion and like a, like the land vomited them out no longer being able to hold them a land that formerly um uh had every right to hold them now couldn't contain them and 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 God knowing that that was going to be the case had them eat the lamb with their sandals on um, their coats on their waists girded their uh, unleavened bread in bowls on their shoulders going out plundering the the land of Egypt on their way out the door well and then and then also I don't know this is important too 
that you see here that the death of, of one firstborn becomes the purchase and the release of another firstborn. And that's another picture we'll get into in some detail. But one firstborn, or you could say the firstborn of Adam is put away. Christ becomes in himself the fulfillment of both sides of this story. The firstborn of, of one man is put to death and, the, and then the firstborn that comes out from among the dead is is made alive. Um, all right. I, I just wrote down some sentences here um, that I want to consider here. If we're looking at the nature of our deliverance, then we need to consider uh, these things. Number one, God, God's salvation did not fix Egypt. It did not fix God's or, or Israel's situation in Egypt. It didn't, in other words, it wasn't an attempt to bless their lives or protect their lives there in Egypt. It wasn't an attempt to change Pharaoh's rules or alleviate their problems there. Their salvation was an exodus out of that land and that slavery and that nature. It was a complete removal from, um, from what they were born into. Uh, it was a it was like Abraham's journey get get out of your country kindred and father's house unto another land that I will reveal to you that, that, that was it wasn't about fixing the first it was about judging the first and bringing them into something totally different that's something that we're going to get into in some detail um another thing the other thing here on my list I already kind of mentioned is that I think it's extremely interesting that nothing uh, nothing that you see and that's in the story of the Exodus is focused on the forgiveness of sins. Um, forgiveness of sin is, is real and it's super important, but it's something that exists within the covenant. In other words, the way into relationship with God isn't forgiveness of sins, it's death. And, but, but once you're in the relationship, once you're in Christ, then there is forgiveness of sins. Okay? So, and, and the scriptures we read, Paul, he, he says things in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. It's in him we have forgiveness of sins. Okay, it's it's and and the church often teaches that forgiveness of sin is how we get in. And the problem with that isn't it's not that it's not that forgiveness of sin isn't a big deal the, the problem is if the, I'm in Christ as just a forgiven sinner then I'm still the one living but if I was baptized into Christ's death and put away at the cross and now I find new life in Christ as Christ I mean he his life is is the new life that needs to be revealed and be informed in me then there's a whole different source of life there's a whole and and, and to whatever extent I, I continue to sin in Christ there is then forgiveness and that's awesome but but our salvation isn't just about taking away bad stuff because a forgiven Adam is still Adam. It's kind of like a delivered Adam is you know you cast a bunch of demons out of Adam. You still this is what Jesus tried to show them. I, I believe you cast a bunch of demons out of Adam. If you don't change the owner of the house, then they just come right back. You know, you, you, Adam the the Adamic man is a perfectly suitable house for that demon to come right it's swept clean and made ready for him to come right back in so a delivered Adam is Adam a forgiven Adam is Adam a healed Adam is Adam and and that's why you know I think that Jesus just proved this so clearly if if he was sent see if Jesus was sent to fix Adam then he failed because he healed their diseases and they all died they ended up dying anyway and most of the people that were healed you know, wanted him to be crucified. He cast out their demons, but he himself said that they were all coming back. You know, he he spoke them words, and it, and then at the same time lamented the fact that they couldn't understand anything he was saying. He he fed their 
bodies, and then the next day they came back and wanted more food. He he was he everything he did for that man, all of these miracles, they were all real, but they all pointed to something beyond themselves. The heal the the blindness that he healed and the freedom that he demonstrated and the food that he offered them and the wine that or the water he changed into wine. All this was pointing to a far greater and a far and a spiritual reality and they didn't get it. Well, guess what? We don't get it either. And uh, Jesus didn't come to fix Adam. He came to put away the first. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9. Lo, I have come. Behold, a body you have prepared for me to do your will, O God. He puts away the first to establish the second. He crucifies one Adam and becomes a totally new man. We are baptized into his death and made partakers of him in resurrection. Christ the head, us the members who live by him. But the Adamic man is, 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 is buried in that blood covered door and something totally new comes out in the morning. Israel, my son, even my firstborn. You see, and then once they're in the covenant, God begins to deal with them about forgiveness of sin. Every time they sin in the covenant, they bring a, a sin offering to the thing and the kidneys and the, and the fat is burned on the altar and the rest of the flesh, the source of the sin is dragged outside of the camp and it's done away with. And, and that's part of one of the awesome realities of being in Christ, forgiveness of sin. But, uh, we we kind of get the cart before the horse there when it comes to talking about uh, sin. I think and 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 it's, and it's because we're oh, this is just a rabbit trail here. But just to, let me just say this: it's because the sin is about the only thing that we think we need, and therefore our view of salvation has is so totally focused on sin. In other words. The only thing that we think we need from God is, you know, we think we did some things wrong and we needed him to, you know, kind of erase the whiteboard or something and then, then we're good. That's, that's how shallow our understanding of the problem is. We, we really think that all we need from God is to like make, you know, white out a few mistakes and, and we're good. But removal of sin is just a, a sliver of what of what God offers us in His Son. A whole new life, a whole new light, a whole new realm, a whole new mind, a whole new nature, a whole new purpose, a whole, a whole new everything in Christ. All things made new. And, and, but we're, we're so fixated on our own, uh, well, okay, I'm gonna move on here. That was only, let's see, it was like point number two there. Okay, salvation, um, Salvation, here's another thing to consider. Salvation in this story was not an escape from judgment, but rather a kind, a specific kind of judgment that had resurrection on the other side. And I've said this many times before too, but the, the, the reason that the Passover or the, uh, the death, the, or the destroyer, I think is what it's called. Sometimes people say the death angel. I think it's always, that's just kind of how we envision it. It just really says the destroyer. The reason the destroyer passed over them is because he saw the blood. What does that mean? That he decided to let them live? No, he, he, he saw the blood and, and, and it was like a sign that said, all who are here are dead. There's nothing to kill here. They're in the blood. They're in the blood of the lamb. They have already voluntarily given their lives into the death of this lamb. And so the Passover, or the, the destroyer, looked around the rest of Egypt for those who were still trying to live and and killed the firstborn there. So salvation is not an escape from judgment, but it's a judgment that has resurrection on the other side. It's a kind of judgment. It's it's Jesus saying, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Now is the judgment of the world. When one dies, all die with him. You know, it's that. It's a kind of judgment that that brings that brings life. Um, another thing you'll see here is that their salvation has to do with both a change of location and a change of nature. The change of location is seen in this physical exodus, this physical removal from one land to another, going through the Red Sea. The change in nature has to do right away, the very first thing God talks about is um, 
uh, unleavened bread. No leaven, uh, unleavened, not just unleavened bread, but unleavened homes. Un, no leaven in your territory, period. Leaven is this living nature of sin, not just sins, but this thing that actually lives and spreads throughout the whole loaf. And, uh, immediately they are not just going to a new place, but, but they're a whole new loaf made new liberated from the thing that was formerly filling and governing and defining them. So the, the, the new nature is seen in this uh, this unleavened bread, and there's so many cool things we'll talk about when we get to that. Um, there's the reality that only those who died in the Lamb could leave the land. And the ones who did not enter into the Lamb, enter into the blood, those who did not paint the blood on the door, they couldn't leave Egypt. They were stuck there. They tried to follow. You know, the doorway of death, the doorway of sin, the government of Satan opened up and allowed, not just allowed, almost forced out this people who had died in the Lamb, this people who had no no business being in Egypt any longer. And yet when when those who had not died in the Lamb tried to follow them out uh, of that realm, uh, the, the the walls of water closed in on them and 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 said, No uh no way out for you. And uh that's a that's a huge thing too. Um let's see here. There's the whole reality of the fact that salvation, God's view of salvation here was the end of a, of Pharaoh's ability to, to, to be Lord over them. Now they could continue and they did continue to serve Pharaoh in a sense in their hearts. But, but Pharaoh literally, in fact Pharaoh, I think that Pharaoh was killed in the, in the Red Sea and the Pharaohs came, came and went since then, but, Pharaoh lost his ability to to he lost his right and his ability to serve them except in the darkness of their own heart where they willingly wanted to serve him. I mean, I'm sorry. Pharaoh lost his ability to control them, to lord it over them, to master them except in in the in the darkness of their own heart where they voluntarily gave their hearts to him. All right. Um okay, so that all that has to do with just just big I don't know uh statements that 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 are trying as best as I can to describe something of the nature of our deliverance. I want to say a few things in the time we have left about the nature of our relationship. In other words, what were they brought into? They you know, they made an exodus out, but what was it for? They they weren't just let loose, you know. It wasn't just like a big prison break, you know, or or uh, you know, someone pushed a button and all the doors came wide open and everyone just ran for it, you know, and they're all free. Um, and, and that's not, that's not freedom. That's not what they, that's not real freedom, you know, and, and, and even in that, you know, the, 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 even in that picture, like the, the angry murderer who runs out of prison gets about 200 yards out and realizes he's still an angry murderer. You know, he didn't really get free of anything. Uh, he just got the, he just got some bars taken off from around him. You know, that's not, and, and that's what, we don't realize that as Christians either, that our freedom from one thing has to be government by another. There has to be, it's like, isn't there some rule of physics like, it, I'm going to totally butcher this. No, I'm not even going to try. There's something about something needs to be acted on by, by an equal or opposite force to like change its direction or something. I maybe someone that's smarter can tell me how that goes later, but, um, whatever. My point is, that's kind of how it works. And the, you're governed, the inertia of your soul is this government of sin. And in order for that government to actually change, to actually have any, have any real transformation that needs to be acted upon by an equal or greater you know force and the only liberty you're going to have of going headlong into death and sin and darkness is finding yourself caught up and bound to joined to united to something that's going headlong in the other direction 
So, the nature of our relationship. They weren't just let, let loose. They were brought into something. And, 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 oh, I want to scream this one. If, if I could just figure out how. They were brought into, they were brought into something that God Himself designed, knew, understood, and he brought them into he brought them into something that he had prepared for them that was perfect and they um they were meant to know and experience the fullness of this, of of what God had prepared for them it wasn't something that the natural eye could see it wasn't something that the natural mind could conceive it wasn't something that had ever entered into the heart of man but it, it it was something perfect. It was something it couldn't be uh, improved upon, and and yet it was something that they did not understand. And 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 I know what I'm what I'm saying here sounds maybe really simple, and and really um, I don't know maybe even not even important, but it is so important because immediately God begins to try to teach them this thing, this relationship that he brings them into and and tells them the very first commandment is that there's no room for human thought or imagination or creativity or addition to what I've brought you into. And, and boy, do humans really um, worship and, and uh, value uh, our ability to to be creative with all things natural and spiritual. But right away, God, they, they find themselves in this, um, in this relationship. It, it's in Christ, but it's in Christ in type and shadow. But nevertheless, it's in Christ. And it's, and it's, and it's perfect. They could never, they could never add to it or make it better. All they could, the, the best thing they could possibly do, the most important thing they could possibly do is just what God said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And don't, here's here's like rule number one, and literally it was rule number one, it was the first commandment of the ten, you know, rule number one, don't, don't let yourself think or imagine or think of me or think of this relationship according to anything that you have seen. Or that has entered into your mind according to any likeness of anything that you've seen on the earth. Don't, in other words, don't take what you've seen about people or stars or the sun or animals or anything and let that influence the way you, you think about me. Those are idols. Whether you carve them into figurines and bow down to them or whether they just sit there in your head as a, as an idea that you think is right. Either way, you're messing up your experience of salvation. You're you're falling short of what I've prepared for you. It's not something that resembles something you've seen. There's only one way to know it, and and I have to show it to you. And that's exactly what God begins to do. He begins to show them a, a relationship that they were not only ignorant of, they were contrary to it. Every aspect of it was something they didn't, again, they didn't just not know it. They were the opposite of it in so many ways. And so, I, I just feel like that, that whole, that, that first commandment is so important. And, and again, we think we're obeying the first commandment when we're not like carving little Buddha statues and stuff, but, or we think we're obeying the first commandment when we're going to a church on Sunday. But friends, every idea about God that was not from God worked in your heart by the light of God is an idol. Every single one. You're never going to guess it right. You're never going to have an idea that didn't come out from darkness unless that idea came down from the Father of Lights. Unless that idea works in you as, as his own understanding of himself. And so everything, it doesn't, even if you put the name Jesus on it, that doesn't change the fact that it's your thought, your creativity, your addition, your idea. 
and 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 you're and then that's exactly what the golden calf was. They made the golden calf, and they said, "This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. This is the very one that spoke to Moses. This is the guy that parted the Red Sea. Here he is. Look at him. Bow down before him." And it was it was an ex- that was a physical expression. We don't do that much in the West, you know, these days. They, they do it a lot in the East still. They carve their ideas into various figurines. Um, but we, we don't do a lot of carving these days, but we sure do a lot of inventing, uh, just as much as, you know, it, it, um, Hinduism has 30 million, um, idols. Christians have 30 million versions of Jesus. And, and it's all the same. Unless, and I know that's a strong thing to say, but see, this is what Jesus said to a bunch of people who had his words for a long time. He said, nobody knows the Father except the Son. And nobody knows the Son except the Father. And the only way that that's remedied is when the Father reveals the Son in you. That's it. That's the only way to have knowledge. So, getting back to our Exodus story, you're brought into a relationship that you don't understand. And that's not okay with us. I, I, I had another bunny trail, but no one, you know, you, you bring someone in, someone gets saved, and if they're a good communicator, we want to just give them a microphone and tell them to, to, to preach the gospel. How do you, how do you know what the, even if you really generally did get saved, you're born of the Spirit, what, what exactly do you know on the other side of the Red Sea about God? What have you known so far? You know what? How much imagination is still active and ruling and governing right, right there, in your heart on the other side of the Red Sea? You know, you know very, very little. And the best thing that you can realize, the best, the best thing that you can do for your own good is to realize exactly what God told them to do in the first commandment. Don't make anything, don't think anything, don't set up anything that's according to what you have seen with your eyes. Nothing like the stars or the sun, nothing like the man or women, nothing like animals, nothing, nothing like anything you've seen because you have not seen me. You've never, did you, and he says it, did you ever, did you see an image when God did this and that? Did you see my face? Did you see anything? No, you didn't. So you are, Ignorant, and you are contrary to, in your natural thought, to this relationship and this life that I brought you into. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Israel, I'm going to reveal it. So God does this. He begins to immediately teach them the nature of the relationship. That relationship had a specific nature to it. It had a specific understanding. It had a very specific uh Definition, uh, boundaries, reality to it. It was, you know, and I've talked about this in other places before. It's, you know, my relationship with my wife is different than my relationship with my dog, Fern, or, or my relationship with my, my, you know, um, mother-in-law is different than my relationship with my daughter. There's different kinds of relationships and, and, and we intuitively understand kind of the, the difference. In natural relationships, but we, we, we also understand that they're not all the same. I wouldn't do, I wouldn't put a bowl of food on the ground for my wife and say, you know, eat it up and, you know, get in the laundry room for the night, you know. <laughs> that sounds kind of mean, but that, that's, that's a, that's part of my relationship with my dog. God created a very specific relationship and and this was really kind of touching my heart when I was in Costa Rica recently, uh, sharing with the folks there. The, th- the thing that God wanted to do with them was reveal the relationship so that they could align with that revelation. Reveal, reveal Christ, because that's what he was doing when he was when he was revealing the manna and the water out of the rock and the serpent on the staff and the high priest and all the things that were pictures of Christ, he wanted to reveal Christ as the substance and life of the relationship and wanted them to be obedient to, that is congruent with, in alignment with, his view of what he had already made them to be. 
you know, their obedience wasn't to a bunch of just rules. It wasn't just, here's my moral standards, obey these things. No, the obedience was to God's view of his son. He wanted them to align with what he had made them to be through the death of the Lamb. And so the relationship in every respect was the way that God was relating to a people and his son. And a people was relating to God through that son. And so, you know, eventually I'm running out of time here, but we'll get into all the details of the law and and we're going to see that Christ, we're going to see that God revealed his son in the sacrifices. And God revealed his son in the manna. And God revealed his son in the Sabbath. And God revealed his son in the relationships between brothers and sisters within the camp. Christ was that relationship. He was relating to one another, not according to the flesh. We're going to see Christ, God revealed his son as the removal of of sin from the camp. We're going to see that God revealed his son as the purification from flesh. Uh, because everything that came out of the flesh made them unclean. Every single thing. Every single, every single thing that came out of a human being's flesh in that camp made them unclean. So Christ was revealed as the ashes of the red heifer. Christ was revealed as the, whatever, all the different pictures. God revealed his son as the victory over the enemy. God revealed his son as the high priest. God, I mean, we could just go on, and we will. We'll, we'll, we'll go through these things and look at them in more detail. But what I'm trying to tell you is that the way that God taught them the covenant, taught, taught them what he brought them into, was by revealing his son as the very substance of every jot and tittle of the law and that's why Jesus came and said he didn't come to destroy it but to fulfill it to be in himself the living substance that all of it pointed to that is that's what he brought them in. he brought, in other words he brought them into Christ but i could have said that you know 20 minutes ago he brought them into Christ and I don't know what that would have meant to everybody. I tell you what it's starting to mean to me these days is that every every rule and command and, and law and ceremony and victory and movement and following of the cloud and light in their... I mean, everything was the Father's desire to reveal Christ in the midst of his people as every aspect of the relationship. And the second part of that, part B of that statement is that their obedience, the nature of their obedience was to, uh, was to the revelation of Christ. They needed to become obedient to the revealing of Jesus Christ. And that's what our obedience is to now, in, in spirit and truth. Theirs in type and shadow, in external ceremonies and pictures. Ours in inward spiritual reality. Obedient to the life, the law, the spirit of life of Christ Jesus that works in us. God is revealing his, God is still revealing his son in you. God is still revealing, desiring to show you the bread of life and the high priest and the offerings that are the sweet-smelling aromas to the Father. He's still trying to do that and wanting your soul to become in every way congruent and aligned with with that life. So I'll stop with that. And-